Hi, I'm David Taub, and welcome to the Parsha Rabbit Hole, where I find something weird in the weekly Torah portion and follow it all the way down until it gets even weirder. This week's rabbit hole takes us to Algeria, Tunisia, and a parallel universe in which everything is one week off. You're traveling through another dimension. But, as always, we have to get there. But before we start getting there, I just wanted to let you know that I just set up a donation and dedications page on creativejudaism.com donate. So now you can dedicate an episode of the Parsha Rabbit Hole in honor of someone you love. Or actually, maybe even someone you don't love. You can dedicate an episode in honor of a stranger's birthday. It'll be a nice little surprise for them. Go to creativejudaism.com donate. The link is also in the description. Okay, so now we can start getting started. This week's Torah portion is Parshas Truma. Or is it? Last week, when I was working on the rabbit hole for Parshas Mishpatim, I wanted to double-check the number of mitzvahs in that Parsha. Most places on the internet said 53, some said 52, and others said 51, and they all quoted from Sefer HaChinuch as their source. So I decided to check my actual physical copy of Sefer HaChinuch to double-check, and it said there that there are 16 positive commandments and 8 negative commandments in Parshas Mishpatim. So I was confused, because if my math is correct, that's only 24, not 53. Gina, that's peculiar. So I looked down at the bottom of the page to a footnote to see if I could get any clarity on this, and it told me to look at the next Parsha, which is this week's Parsha, or at least it should be, Parsha's Truma. But in Sefer HaChinuch, the next Parsha after Parsha's Mishpatim is not Parsha's Truma, it's Parsha's Im Kesef, which is a Parsha that I've never heard of before. And according to Sefer HaChinuch, Parshas Im Kesef has seven positive commandments and 22 negative commandments, totaling 29. So if we add this to the 24 mitzvahs Sefer HaChinuch listed for Parshas Mishpatim, then we get that total of 53. So again, I looked down at the footnotes, and it explained that there was a custom in parts of Spain that's mentioned or alluded to by a few different Rishonim, Torah scholars of the late Middle Ages, to split Parshas Mishpatim into two separate Torah portions in certain years. And it also added that this custom continues today in parts of Tunisia and Algeria. Tunisia, Morocco, Uganda, Angola, Zimbabwe, Djibouti, Botswana, Mozambique, Zambia, Swaziland, Gambia, Guinea, Algeria, Ghana. Now, it's not totally surprising to me that there are times and places where the divisions of the Torah portions were different than how we do it now. The Talmud doesn't lay out the divisions of the Torah into portions. And it even mentions in one place that there are communities that use a three-year cycle, which would divide it up completely differently. Although it seems obvious there that that wasn't common. But, by the time we get to the Rishonim, the medieval Torah scholars, it seems like the Torah portions were pretty standard. But really what was interesting to me was seeing this in the wild, in a book that I use all the time, and suddenly there's an extra Parsha in it that I never heard of before. And also, this is apparently still done in some places. So that's where this week's rabbit hole starts, with this extra mystery Parsha, Parshas im Kesef. So if you're ready to find out more about it, let's dive in. Okay, first let's take a look at the verse that this Parallel Universe Parsha is named for. It's in the middle of last week's Torah portion, Parsha's Mishpatim. This is what it says. Im kesef talva es ami es neshech. When you lend money to my people, to the poor person who is with you, do not act toward him as a creditor, do not place the burden of interest upon him. So, this verse is a pretty important verse. It gives us the commandment to lend money to people who need it, and to not charge interest. And we'll get into that a little bit more later on. 
But first, we need to figure out what the deal is with Parshas Im Kesef. According to that footnote I told you about earlier, even in places that have the custom to do this Parsha, it's only in certain years, when certain conditions fall into place. And in order to understand when that was, I had to go way out of my comfort zone and figure out a bunch of technical calendar math stuff about how the weekly Torah portions work. Fortunately for you, I'm going to try to make it simple. The biggest issue is the Jewish leap year. Our calendar is lunisolar. It has lunar months based on the cycle of the moon, but then to make sure it doesn't shift around too much along in the solar year, some years have an extra month, and that keeps things in check. It all started on the 13th hour of the 13th day of the 13th month. But, in order to make the Torah portions work out, in a Shonapshuta, a normal non-leap year with 12 months, we have a few double portions. V'yakel Pekude, Tezriya Mitzayra, Achrei Kedoshim, and Behar Bechu Kaisai. And those four sets of double Torah portions makes everything fit. And then in a leap year, we split all of them out, and each Parsha is given its own week. There are a few other double parshas which are used for different things, and I'm not going to get into all of them here. But for the most part, the double parshas are to take care of those four extra weeks we get in a leap year. But, for complicated calendar math reasons I don't fully comprehend, if Rosh Hashanah falls out on a Thursday in a Jewish leap year, then we end up with an extra Shabbos. I don't know why, don't ask me, it just happens. That's very hard for me to understand. And that's where Parshas in Kesev comes in. Avudarham, who lived in Spain in the 1300s, is the earliest source I saw that mentions it. He says that in such a year, when there are 29 weeks from the beginning of the year until Pesach, but only 28 Torah portions, there are places where they split Parshas Mishpatim after the verse Im Kesev Talve. Or, in other places, they split Parshas Kisisa from the word Vayifed. So there it is, Parshas Im Kesef, and also another parallel universe Parsha, Parshas Ve'yifen. But I haven't seen that mentioned as a Parsha anywhere else. I've seen places that mention this idea of splitting Parshas Kisisa to solve this extra week problem, but I haven't seen it presented as its own Parsha the way Sefer HaChinuch presents Parshas Im Kesef. Now you may be wondering that neither of those two things that Avodarham suggested seem to be what we do. The way we deal with this problem is by reading Parshas Mates and Parshas Mase separately. And that's the only time we do. In any other leap year, Mates and Mase are still doubled up. Only if Rosh Hashanah falls on a Thursday does this magical extra Shabbos get created, and we read Mates on one Shabbos and Mase on the next Shabbos. At least outside of Israel. In Israel there's one other time Mates and Mase are read separately, but my head is already spinning from all of this calendar stuff, so I'm not going to get into it. Anyways, now you might be asking the opposite question, which is, why doesn't Avodarham suggest this? And that's because of a custom which was universally accepted by the time of the Middle Ages to read certain Torah portions on the Shabbos before certain Jewish holidays because of some thematic connection between that Parsha and that Yom Tov. One of those is that in a leap year, Parshas Metzorah has to be read before Pesach because of some sort of dish-related connection that I don't fully grasp the importance of. And the plate with the spoon. But for some reason, it is very important. So, in every other possible configuration of the Jewish year, we can make that work. We can have our dish connection before Pesach just by doing the double Parshas we have. Except for when Rosh Hashanah falls out on a Thursday. And that's why Avodarham counted the number of weeks and parshias from the beginning of the year until Pesach, because he was trying to fix this extra week problem before Pesach, so we could make sure to have our dish-related Mitzurah thing happen. 
So now the question flips back onto us. How do we deal with that problem? And the answer is, we don't. The almost universally accepted way of dealing with that now is to just ignore it. Honestly, it doesn't happen that often. The last time it did happen was 2014, and the next time it's gonna happen is 2035. Yeah, in the distant future, I know. Wait, no, that's not what I, ah, it's too late. So we just don't deal with it. We lose our dish symbolism for that year and fix our extra week problem in the summer when we give Parshas Masse its own Shabbos. Which means that for the communities that do observe this custom and fix the extra week problem with Parshas Im Kesef, they're a Parsha behind the rest of the Jewish world until we fix the problem in the summer, which is like half the year. And that's pretty wild to me because that's a long time for us to be out of sync with some of our brothers and sisters. But don't worry, this year is not one of those years. As I said, this doesn't happen again until 2035, which answers the question I asked at the beginning of the video, which is, is this week's Torah portion Parshas Truma? And the answer is yes. Yes, it is, even if you live in Tunis. Okay, so another thing I want to point out is that for the communities that observe this custom of reading Parshas Im Kesef, they never actually end up reading Matos and Masse separately. Doesn't seem like a big deal, but... As I was digging around for information about this, I saw a bunch of places that suggested that that is actually the reason for the custom, specifically so that Parshas Mates and Parshas Masse are always together. I saw an almost identical phrasing for this in a bunch of different places, so I couldn't really determine the earliest source for this, but I'm going to quote it from Luach Dover Be'itoi, which is a yearly almanac of the Jewish calendar printed in Israel. It says that the reason people give for this custom is that a long time ago there was a plague, and so they instituted a practice of reading Matos and Masse together as a kind of very serious wordplay. Matos means tribes, and Masse means journeys or travels. But the letters that spell the word Matos can also be read as Mitos, which means beds. So, Matos Masse together would be a way of saying that the deathbeds of the plague victims should travel away, no more deathbeds. And then after they instituted this custom, the plague stopped. So that's kind of a different way of approaching this custom, and it's interesting because it has a story in it. But it's possible that this answer was given as a kind of speculation when there wasn't other information available, because it seems like the references to Parshas Im Kesef have kind of been popping up in older manuscripts and stuff over time. Okay, so like I said, that original footnote in Sefer HaChinuch that sent me down this rabbit hole mentioned that this is still the custom today in parts of Tunisia and Algeria. So after last week's rather technical episode about property damage, I wanted to try to give this week's episode a little bit more of a human element. Of all the souls I have encountered in my travels, this was the most human. So I tried to reach out to the Tunisian Jewish community through a few different channels to see if I could get some stories or personal experiences with Parshas Im Kesef, but that didn't go anywhere. I couldn't reach anybody. I also briefly considered trying to contact somebody from the Algerian Jewish community, but after a little bit of Google searching, I discovered that tragically there's barely any Jewish community left in Algeria. So it seemed like I wasn't going to get any personal stories. but. 
When I was doing my final sweep for some more obscure phrases connected to this topic, I stumbled upon a book of responsa by David Muati, who I had never heard of before, but he was a halachic authority in Algeria in the 1800s. And in that book, he tells a story. He says that there was a particular synagogue in Algiers, the capital of Algeria where he lived, and the person in charge of that synagogue was not from Algiers but he was the only one. It's not like everybody in that shoal was from out of town. It was just this one guy who was in charge of the shoal. And everybody else who went there was from Algiers. But this guy insisted that they do things differently than the local custom. And specifically, they wouldn't read Parsha's Im Kesef in the years where it was the custom in Algiers to do so. They would read the entire Parsha's Mishpatim, and then the next week, while everybody else in the city was reading Parsha's Im Kesef, that one shul would move on to Parsha's Truma. Before we continue, I just want to point out that this is a bigger deal than just reading a different Parsha than everyone else for one week. As I said earlier, this offset doesn't sync up again until several months later. So you'd have this one shul in the city that's reading a completely different parsha than everyone else in the city for half a year. So David Muati says that he told the members of this shul that what they're doing is violating the prohibition of loisus goidudu, which is a mitzvah that prohibits a person from cutting oneself. But the Gemara explains, and the Rambam brings it as halacha, that this also prohibits Jews from making cuts in the community by having two different Jewish courts in the same city directing different groups of people to do different things. So, David Muati said that by having one synagogue in the city doing things so differently than the rest of the community, that violates the mitzvah of Loisis Goidudu. But, he says, there was a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar in that shul, who told him, no, Loisis Goidudu only applies to something that's Midiraisa, biblical commandments meaning that Lysis Goidudu would only kick in if two different groups are following two different rabbinic interpretations of a biblical commandment, which didn't apply to this case, where the differences were only about things that were regional custom. And so, David Moati concludes, the end of the story is, they didn't listen to him. So, this story is fascinating to me for several reasons. First, I was very happy to find a story that gives us a kind of slice of life from the Algerian Jewish community. Second, I think it's really cool for a rabbi to print a story about a fight that he lost. It is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not a weakness. That is life. But the most interesting thing about this story to me is that this guy wouldn't agree with David Moati that this violated the halacha of not having two different groups in the same city with different interpretations of a halacha because he had a different interpretation of that halacha not to have two different groups with two different interpretations of a halacha. And if you've ever watched this series before, you know I love loops. Okay, so this is almost where the Parshas Im Kesef trail ends, but... As I was searching for the phrase Parshas Im Kesef, I actually ended up seeing a bunch of letters from the Lubavitcher Rebbe dated as having been written during Parshas Im Kesef, which was puzzling at first. But once I got my bearings, I realized that these were letters written to the directors of the Gemach, the Free Loan Association in Crown Heights, about their annual Malava Malka. Every year they would do their annual report and have an event on the Saturday night after Parshas Mishpatim, which is the Parsha that includes this verse, Im Kesef Talva, which is the source of the mitzvah to lend money without interest to anyone who needs it. So, in these letters, and also in public addresses, the Rebbe would refer to this event as happening Moitzi Shabbos Parshas Im Kesef. 
and would even at the top of the letter that he wrote during the previous week date it as having been written during Parshas Imkesef. So, even though we don't practice this custom of reading Parshas Imkesef, and even if we did, we wouldn't be doing it this year, I think it's cool that Parshas Imkesef still gets its own identity within Parshas Mishpatim. Alright, so before we wrap up, I want to go back a little bit and focus on the concept of a Gemach. Gemach is an acronym for Gemilus Chasadim, Acts of Bestowing Kindness, which includes all acts of kindness, but this abbreviation, Gemach, has become the term that's specifically used for Jewish free loan institutions, which is interesting to me because that's not the name of the mitzvah. And the phrase Gemilus Chasadim isn't even mentioned anywhere at all in Tanakh. It first shows up in Mishnah, but when it does, it makes a huge entrance. In Perka Avis, it says that the world stands on three things. Torah, Avodah, and Gemilus Chasadim. So, Gemilus Chasadim, acts of kindness, is one of three things that the world stands on. Sometimes the fate of the whole world depends on the things that I do. That's a pretty big deal for something that's kind of undefined. But, according to Gemara, that kind of amorphous, inclusive nature of Gemilus Chasadim is what makes it great. It says that the sages taught that there are three ways in which Gemilus Chasadim, acts of kindness, are better than tzedakah. For those who don't know, tzedakah is often translated as charity. It's not a great translation, but it works. Tzedakah means giving money to poor people. So, the Gemara tells us that Gemilus Chasadim, acts of kindness, is better than tzedakah in three ways. First, tzedakah can only be done with money, but gimelus chasadim can be done with your body, meaning that you can do kind things, all sorts of kind things. Second, tzedakah can only be given to poor people, but acts of kindness can be done for anybody, rich or poor. And third, you can only give tzedakah to people who are alive, but gimelus chasadim, acts of kindness, can be performed for the living and for the dead. So I think it's interesting that even though free loans is a specific mitzvah in the Torah, as we learned from the verse im kesef talve, nevertheless, the word that we universally accepted to use for it doesn't come from any of those words in that verse. It's this word gemach, which doesn't actually even mean anything. It's just an abbreviation for something that kind of means everything. I can hardly say it, and I sure don't know what it means. And according to the Chafetz Chaim, this obligation to lend to someone who needs it doesn't just apply to free loans. He says it can be anything, because the concept of chesed, kindness, includes anything through which you can make another person's life a little bit better. And it seems like we, the Jewish people, have fully embraced that interpretation of the mitzvah. Today, the concept of a gemach is very broad. It's grown far beyond just free loan societies. If you look at the community listings for different Jewish communities, you'll see long lists of gemachs for lots of different types of things. Last week I put out a request on my WhatsApp status asking friends for examples of unexpected gemachs, and people sent me a lot of very interesting ones. Among my favorites are the bubble machine gemach, which rents out bubble machines for weddings. The chickpea gemach, so there's a custom to serve chickpeas at a shalom zacher, a celebration held on the Shabbos after a baby boy is born. So the chickpea gemach will give you free chickpeas. My favorite one was a listing in Muncie, New York for a Yiddish or English poem gemach. I really wanted to call them and find out more about this because it sounded really cool to me, but I didn't want to bother them. So I don't know exactly what they do, but I assume that they'll write a poem for you in Yiddish or English. Maybe for invitations or something, or just for like a speech at a party, I'm not sure. But that's amazing. I love the idea of offering fun, creative services as a gemach. 
And that got me thinking about the whole concept of a gamach in the framework of creativity. You can probably tell by now, I'm a big fan of creativity. That's the name of this channel, right? Creative Judaism. It's a big deal for me. And I hadn't thought of chesed, kindness, as an expression of Jewish creativity before. But when I was looking at that virtually endless list of different ways people have figured out to help other people, I realized that it is. So here's my challenge for all of you rabbit hole viewers out there. I want you to come up with a weird but genuinely helpful gemach and put it in the comments. If it's something that you're actually in the position to establish, then great, let that YouTube comment serve as the first step. And if you're not in the position to actually do it, it's still worth putting in the comments. Consider it a donation to my weird gemach ideas gemach. And as long as we're on the topic of donations, I'll mention one more time that you can dedicate an episode of the Parsha Rabbit Hole in honor of a birthday or a yurtzeit or whatever at creativejudaism.com donate. These rabbit holes don't dig themselves, so this would help me continue digging and be able to make even more cool stuff. All right, that's it. That's the rabbit hole. Remember, put your weird gemach ideas in the comments. Thank you for following me down the rabbit hole. Unless, of course, you fell down a parallel universe rabbit hole, in which case I have no idea when that'll end. That's up to parallel me.